Elvis. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Bruce Lee are insane. At 17, he was banished from his hometown of Hong Kong when he couldn't stop picking fights. As an adult, he revolutionized martial arts with moves like his one-inch punch, a move so unexpectedly impactful that it could send an opponent literally flying backwards through the air. He parlayed his work as a martial arts trainer into a martial arts action star, introducing millions of Westerners to his rapid style. He made sure he looked good on screen by having the sweat glands in his armpits surgically removed. His fame became problematic in China, where he wasn't able to escape obsessive fans and dubious triad gangs. And he single-handedly changed the perception of Asian actors in historically white Hollywood. It goes without saying that Bruce Lee made great films, some of the most groundbreaking and enduring kung fu films of all time. Unlike that clip I played you at the top of the show, that wasn't a clip from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Arthur Fields and Billy Murray performing over there from 1917. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to Guy Hamilton's Live and Let Die. And why would I play you that specific slice of shaken, not stirred celluloid cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on July 20th, 1973. And that was the day that Bruce Lee died suddenly at the age of 32. A death that was wrapped in mystery and lies, and one that both authorities and fans are still trying to piece together to this day. On this episode, picking fights, surgically removed sweat glands, a one-inch punch, and Bruce Lee. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Season one, Hollywood Land. Jay Sebring was dead. Stephen Parent was dead. Abigail Folger, Wojciech Frykowski, dead and dead. And Sharon, Sharon Tate was dead. And so was her unborn baby boy. Their unborn baby boy. Sharon's and her husband's, Roman Polanski's. Roman was distraught. He couldn't believe that someone had broken into his Los Angeles home on Cielo Drive in the middle of the evening on August 8th, 1969 while he was in Europe working on a film and murdered his wife, their unborn child, and their friends. But even harder to believe was that one month later, he was still waiting on the police to arrest the killer. The cops had very little to go on. 
So far, their biggest lead was a pair of horn-rimmed glasses they had found on the floor near the bodies. Roman tried to immerse himself in making his latest film, but it was no use. Roman Polanski at the time, in 1969, was one of the hottest directors in Hollywood thanks to his devilishly smart thriller, Rosemary's Baby, and he couldn't think about movies. He thought only about the killer. He knew that if the killer wasn't caught soon, he'd go crazy. So Roman turned into a detective. If the police weren't going to find the killer, then he would. Roman Polanski, the amateur detective, deputized by grief, rage, and revenge. And he was pretty sure he knew who did it. Bruce Lee. Roman came to this conclusion unexpectedly. He was investigating under the assumption that the killer was in a circle of friends, someone who knew that Sharon had gathered her friends together for a festive slumber party. Perhaps it was a crime of passion or jealousy. Roman became skeptical of friends and enemies alike. Everyone was a suspect. At the time, Roman was taking private self-defense lessons from Bruce Lee. Every self-respecting martial arts wannabe in Hollywood was taking private lessons from Bruce. Steve McQueen, James Colburn, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Bruce had Jay Sebring to thank for that. Jay, a hairdresser to the stars, was the guy who, back in 1965, recommended a then-unknown Bruce Lee to Hollywood producers after he'd seen him compete at the Long Beach International Karate Championships. Bruce was buds with Jay. Bruce was buds with Sharon. Bruce was the karate advisor on the set of Sharon's final movie, The Wrecking Crew. Bruce was one of them. Los Angeles, September 1969, a month after the murders. It was a hot late summer afternoon. Bruce and Roman were sparring at a gym on the Paramount lot. Bruce casually mentioned to Roman that he'd recently lost a pair of glasses. These training sessions were important to Roman. He could punch through the pain and sweat out the rage. The discipline of Kung Fu kept his mind straight. But when Bruce told him that he couldn't find his glasses, Roman stopped in his tracks. Was Bruce missing the same pair the cops had recovered at Cielo Drive? But what were the odds? It could make sense. Roman could make it make sense. Bruce's training, his skill, and Roman had heard all the rumors about Dimmock, the death touch, the vibrating palm. Bruce had told him that he was capable of delivering a fatal blow with the quick strike of his hand. Sharon and the others would have welcomed Bruce with open arms that night. They all would have partied as friends until something inside Bruce snapped. My God, Roman thought, suddenly paralyzed by fear. I'm blocking punches from Sharon's killer. Roman's muscles seized up, his nerves were on fire. He tried to keep his shit together, focus on his training, maintain that poker face. He put his hands up to meet Bruce's hands like he'd been taught to practice Chi Sao. Sticky hands, be water, my friend. After the lesson, Roman had an idea. He offered to take Bruce to an eyeglasses shop and buy him a new pair, Roman's treat. Roman didn't mention that Bruce would unknowingly test drive the same prescription that was found at the scene of the crime. On the ride over, Roman tried to engage in small talk, but couldn't stop thinking about what he was going to do if Bruce's prescription was a match. Would he call the authorities? Would he confront Bruce right there in the eyeglasses shop? And what else was Bruce Lee hiding from him? Who was Bruce Lee exactly? Clearly, there were two sides to Bruce Lee. He was a revolutionary kung fu guru, but he was despised by the old guard of classical martial arts. 
He was touted as a family man, but Roman knew that Bruce sometimes kept a side piece hidden from his old lady. And for every person in Hollywood who sang his praises, you could easily find another person who thought he was an arrogant asshole. But that could be said about everybody in Hollywood. Roman was looking at Bruce a little differently than he had before, because Bruce was different. Bruce was an outsider. He may have been born in San Francisco, but that was sheer happenstance. His father's opera troupe was touring the US when his mother went into labor. He was raised back in Hong Kong, where he studied obscure styles of kung fu at a young age and broke into Chinese cinema as a child actor. But Bruce wasn't just an outsider to the West. He was an outsider in his own land. For some reason that Roman was unaware of, Bruce had been cast out of Hong Kong when he was only 18, exiled to the States. For what? Could it be for something criminal? Did anyone in Roman's circle of friends really know who this fucking guy was? Sure, Roman himself was an outsider to a certain extent, the Holocaust survivor who had gotten his start as a film director in Europe before being wooed by Hollywood. But Roman could pass for the rest of them. He was white. Bruce Lee was not. It was a bias that Bruce had endured since he landed back in the place of his birth in the late 50s, in the States. Every time he walked down the street, he was reminded that he didn't look like the others, whether or not he had a white girl on his arm. And the mouth-breathing troglodytes following him made that clear. And Bruce walked down the street like a guy with something to prove, like the cock of the walk, a walk of one. He had no posse, and the troglodytes saw his confident walk and interpreted it as a challenge. They called him a pussy, a pansy, and way worse. They egged him on with their racial epithets until he had had enough. If he didn't have a girl on his arm that particular evening, he would stop walking slowly turn around and ask them to repeat their slurs to his face. None of the dumb fuck white boys quite understood that this outsider was about to make them regret opening their big fat mouths in the first place. They all wanted to fight him. They really, really wanted to fight him. And more times than not, Bruce Lee would gladly oblige. Roman Polanski did not want to fight Bruce Lee. He just wanted to watch him try on a pair of horn-rimmed frames with a nearsighted prescription in the lenses. He looked up at Bruce next to him in the eyeglasses shop. Bruce with the extra five inches height on the diminutive Roman. Bruce slid the frames slowly over his nose and nestled them behind his ears. He adjusted them so that they were straight, blinked his eyes a few times, and then looked right at Roman. Shit, man, Bruce said. I can't see a fucking thing. Roman breathed a huge sigh of relief. The tension in his shoulders went limp. He felt a fleeting wave of regret for unfairly profiling his Chinese friend. You're never gonna believe what I thought, he said to Bruce. But Bruce could believe it. He knew it before Roman even explained himself. He had been fighting this fight for most of his adult life. The outsider fight, the scapegoat fight, the fight fought by the confident and the cocky. It was a fight that Bruce Lee wouldn't win without at least one casualty along the way. Bruce Lee shattered the glass ceiling for Asian actors in Hollywood. For decades, Asian roles were tossed to white actors who used sticky tape to make their eyes appear slanted. Blackface, 
by a different name. Even the popular Chinese-American detective Charlie Chan was portrayed in no less than 16 films in the 1930s by Warner Olan, a white actor of very Swedish descent. When Olan quit the role, it was handed down to a number of other actors, James Bond style. And just like James Bond, all of them were white. Even later in the 1970s, the Shaolin monk at the center of the popular TV series Kung Fu was played by David Carradine, a white dude. Bruce Lee said, fuck that. Bruce Lee single-handedly smashed through every barrier just like he smashed his way through a room full of mirrors in the climax of his best and final film, Enter the Dragon. But before he did that, he was just a teenage fuck-up with a big chip on his shoulder and too many street fights under his belt and his life would have gone a little differently if he hadn't picked on the wrong kid. 1959, Hong Kong. The cops were familiar with the Lee family house. Bruce assumed they were there for his father, Lee Hoi Chin, just like last time. The last time a British officer made himself at home while his Chinese underlings did his dirty work. And the place was tossed. They brought Hoi Chin's stash into the light opium pipes, paraphernalia. The cops didn't actually give a shit about Hoi Chien's addiction. They just wanted money to walk away. And they wouldn't leave that day until Bruce's mom coughed up the Hong Kong equivalent of $500. Now the cops were back a second time. And Bruce just assumed that they were there to shake down his old man, but this time was different. This time, they were after him. They were after Bruce. Bruce had gained a reputation around the city and it wasn't just for the small movie roles he was able to eke out as a sometimes child actor. He was a punk. More specifically, he was a bully. He walked the city with a knife or sometimes chains hidden up his sleeve, looking for someone who wanted a piece or someone who wanted some protection. He just needed an excuse. He pulled the knife on his PE teacher. He cracked the ribs of an older man practicing Tai Chi simply because the man's slow Tai Chi moves bugged the shit out of him. Slow wasn't Bruce Lee's style, and neither was traditional Tai Chi. Bruce was an early convert to Wing Chun, an obscure brand of Kung Fu that was reintroduced through the teachings of a grandmaster martial artist named Ip Man. This was at a time when the martial arts Kung Fu in particular was rejected by Hong Kong's polite society as a pastime for hicks and criminals. Wing Chun came in handy for Bruce's back alley tussles, Tight quarters, kick low, punch high, hands always moving. It was like fighting with short bursts of punctuation rather than with run-on sentences. Bruce felt like he always had the advantage. But this time, the odds were on the other kid. Not that Bruce hadn't won that fight he had easily, but he went after the wrong kid. The kid's parents were connected and those connected parents went to the school and the school went to the authorities and thus there were cops in the Lee house again. Bruce was staring down a second expulsion, but the cops didn't want to bribe this time. And they were there to do the bidding of a powerful family, that kid's family, and that family wanted Bruce gone. And the deal was Bruce Lee could stop picking fights or spend his 18th birthday in jail. His parents panicked. Hoi Chien had quit opium cold turkey after the cops last visit, but that didn't stave off the ensuing public humiliation. If Bruce went to jail, his family was staring down another crushing embarrassment. He needed to graduate high school somewhere, but no schools in Hong Kong would now have him. The only thing Bruce had working to his advantage at that moment was his dual citizenship. Born in San Francisco, raised in Hong Kong, in America, Bruce could start all over again. 
clean slate, clean record. And that's how Bruce Lee found himself headed to the west coast of the United States to unfuck himself. The path he was on in Hong Kong was obviously a dead-end path. America had to provide a better opportunity like America was used to doing, and Bruce had to seize it. In America, Bruce Lee didn't want to fight everyone, but everyone wanted to fight Bruce Lee. After a few years bouncing around minimum wage jobs from California to Washington State, securing his high school diploma, and meeting the Seattle woman who would become his wife, Bruce found himself teaching his kung fu moves to white Americans who desperately wanted to learn. Be water, he told his students. Water is formless, water is shapeless. Your opponent cannot grasp you if you are water. Your opponent cannot hurt you if you are water. Bruce followed his own advice. He dedicated himself to becoming the best kung fu artist in the world. And he did so by being water the coldest splash of water ever thrown at the face of traditional martial arts. He tore down conventional norms and poked holes in the teachings of classical kung fu styles, first in a published book and then in his kuhn, or a martial arts training hall that he opened in Oakland, and then in a series of controversial talks and demonstrations that he gave in Long Beach in San Francisco. Those demonstrations were meant to woo new students, but they had the opposite effect. Imagine going to see someone give a demonstration on the thing you had dedicated your life to, only to listen to that person tell you in a hundred different ways how everything you had done for years was wrong. And they lined up to fight Bruce Lee, not because he had the stones to say he was the best, but because he had insulted them all. And no one wanted to fight Bruce Lee more than Wong Jack Man. November, 1964, Oakland. Wong Jack Man, a disciple of Northern Shaolin Kung Fu straight out of Hong Kong, rolled up to Bruce Lee's coon, insulted and threatened and shamed. His San Francisco posse was in tow. He was there to answer for all the shit Bruce talked at his demonstration in San Francisco's Chinatown. Bruce got nervous. He thought about the handgun he kept hidden in a drawer at the back of his studio. Bruce accepted Wong Jack Man's challenge. In this corner, old-fashioned Shaolin science, and in this corner, newfangled heresy that moved like water. The two faced each other, and for a moment, there was nothing. Silence. Bruce leapt forward and struck first. He went for the shins and then the eyes. Wong Jack Man stumbled backwards. He thought he'd been blinded. Bruce dug in. He threw short, forceful punches. One, two, three, another, and another. But Wong Jack Man kept stumbling backwards, hands up, trying to fend off the relentless onslaught. Bruce went for the groin, and then the head, and then the groin again, and then the head. Every close quarter hit was another validation of Bruce's dominance. Every unstoppable punch said, I'm the best. Wong Jack Man knew it. His crew knew it. Bruce's kung fu partner and his wife, both standing by, they also knew it. Bruce Lee was the motherfucking greatest. Wong Jack Man fled. He turned around and ran, but Bruce was far from done. He followed in close pursuit, his arms, windmills, a series of rapid punches nipping at his opponent's back. And then Wong Jack Man stopped running. He dug his heels into the floor, quickly turned around, and delivered a karate chop. It landed on Bruce's neck. Bruce felt, was that, was that blood running down his neck? He touched his hand to the pain and saw that it was coated in dark red. His eyes shifted to Wong Jack Man's arm and saw the leather wrist bracelet hiding beneath the long sleeves of his shirt. The metal spike studs were coated with Bruce's blood. The dirtiest of dirty tricks. Bruce went ballistic. 
He got Wong Jack Man stumbling backwards again, up against the window at the front of the Kuhn storefront. On the ground, nowhere to run, Bruce towered over him, blood running down his neck, holding back his rage the best he could. And Bruce ordered his opponent to admit defeat. Wong Jack Man knew that Bruce Lee didn't need illegal wrist bracelets to end him right then and there. But Bruce didn't want to end him. He wanted his opponent to acknowledge that he was wrong and that Bruce was right. That Bruce was the best. Say it, say it, motherfucker. Deep down, though, Bruce was nervous. The more famous he became, the more people were going to want to challenge him. Today was a metal-spiked wrist bracelet, and who knew what tomorrow would bring? Being the best made him a target. Being the best could get him killed. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Yo, man, in Hong Kong, I'm bigger than the fucking Beatles. It was 1971, and Bruce Lee could hardly believe what he was saying. He was talking with friends back in LA about his newfound fame in China. In America, he remained a cult star to a select few primetime TV households and by martial arts fans who knew him as the architect of Jeet Kune Do, a new system that improved upon the concise tenets of Kung Fu. To everyone else, though, he was a nobody. Hong Kong was different. He only truly appreciated his fame while walking down a Hong Kong side street one afternoon. He was keeping to himself, whistling, absentmindedly, hands in his pockets. And out of nowhere, the mob appeared at his back. His walk quickly turned into a run. He pulled his hands from his pockets and swung them like pendulums at his side. He ran, he ducked into a nearby phone booth and let the mob scream by, oblivious that he was standing there with a receiver in his hand. And the mob found him again later, this time hiding out in a cafe. He jumped and fled out the back door. He scurried down a dead-end alley. He scaled a fence with ease, jumped over to the other side with grace, and landed on a wagon full of newspaper bundles. He took one of the papers, held it up to his face like he was reading it, and let the mob pass him by. He was safe. For now. Not as safe as he was in America, though, where people remained indifferent to his potential as an actor. Bruce's reputation as the best kung fu artist had helped get his foot in the door in Hollywood in the mid-60s. William Dozier, the producer behind the campy Batman TV series, got Bruce his first major role in 1966. It wasn't on the big screen, but on TV, and it wasn't the lead, but as a martial arts expert and partner to a white-masked vigilante, the Green Hornet. Bruce played the role of Kato, and the show aired for one season on ABC before it was canceled. And during that time, Bruce never learned that he was getting paid five times less than his white co-star, Van Williams. After The Green Hornet, Bruce focused his efforts to make the first kung fu movie in Hollywood. It would be authentic, thrilling, groundbreaking. But at the end of the 60s, even with clients like Steve McQueen training on the regular, and friends like Roman Polanski crossing him off his shit list, Hollywood still resisted the notion of an Asian star on the big screen. Bruce knew he'd have to put up a fight. It was a fight that wouldn't be easy to win, and Bruce was used to winning fights easily. Meanwhile, China couldn't get enough of the Green Hornet. By the start of the 70s, the show was airing in Hong Kong under the title The Kato Show, thus making Bruce bigger than the fucking Beatles. And the Hong Kong movie studios wanted the prodigal son back. Bruce, desperate for money to support his wife and two small children, moved his family back to Hong Kong, where he signed with Raymond Chow's production company, Golden Harvest, for three kung fu films. 
The Big Boss, which opened in China in 1971, was an instant hit to the tune of $3.5 million. But 1972's Fist of Fury was even bigger, making over $4 million in its first month alone. The third film, also released in 1972, was The Way of the Dragon with Chuck Norris as the hairy nemesis. That one made a million bucks in its first weekend. But the level of fame and attention Bruce received was frightening. Hong Kong didn't just love him. Hong Kong wanted to fight him. One afternoon, when Bruce's children, Brandon and Shannon, were playing in the backyard of their mansion in Kowloon Tong, one of the most expensive residential areas in the city, a crazed fan climbed over the protective wall. His eyes were wide, his motions were erratic. The kids shrieked, he called for Bruce by his Chinese childhood nickname. Bring me Lee, little dragon. Let's see just how good you really are. Bruce appeared, still reeling from the not-so-distant murders of Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring, head full of fear and paranoia and anger, a protective father looking to ensure the safety of his children, a proud husband aiming to preserve the sanity of his American wife. He thrust a supercharged heel straight into the chest of the strange man. He never kicked anyone harder. To complicate matters, other strangers began showing up at Bruce's door. They'd grease his palm with thousands of dollars, a mere token of appreciation, they promised. But Bruce was no dummy. The strangers were gang members of China's organized crime syndicate, the Triad. They were moving in on Hong Kong film, just like with the cops when Bruce was a kid. It was a bribe, a favor that they would expect returned at some unspecified time down the road. Stalkers, fans, bloodthirsty amateurs, triad gangs. It was all too much. Bruce feared for his life and the lives of his wife and children. He needed to double down on creating roles and opportunities for himself in Hollywood, the promised land, where one of the many promises was that he would be kept safe. And little did he know it, but Bruce had already created such an opportunity. The box office smash trio of kung fu movies in Hong Kong did not go unnoticed by Hollywood producer Fred Weintraub, already proving his zeitgeist medal with the big screen documentary Woodstock. He was a fan, and he convinced Warner Brothers that it was a market they had to tap into. But the time was now. Kung fu was the rage. Ask anyone, Bruce Lee was the motherfucking master. Bruce Lee's hard work had paid off. He was the best, and America was finally yielding to the best, just like Wong Jack Man in 1964. Enter the Dragon, an action flick about three heroes who infiltrate the den of a deadly narcotics dealer, made history as the first motion picture co-production ever between Hollywood and Hong Kong. Warner Brothers and Golden Harvest would co-produce. Bruce would star and oversee all the fight scenes. This was the opportunity to land America, it could very well be his one shot. He worked his ass off to get it right. He worked so hard that word spread like wildfire. Bruce Lee was the next it man. He had the X factor. He worked so hard that his chiseled body became harder, faster, stronger, better. He worked so hard that he didn't stop to think twice about rekindling a secret affair with Taiwanese actress Betty Ting Pei. He knew it was wrong, the family man that he was, but it was one of his weaknesses. Plus, he was careful. No one would ever know. Another weakness was his fondness for getting high. He worked so hard that he began to rely more on the Nepalese hash he'd become partial to in order to tame his overdriven work ethic. He ate it raw, he ate it in brownies, he ate it when Steve McQueen wasn't around with one of his hot rod spliffs. 
The Nepalese hash was some of the most potent hash on the street, created by allowing the plants to literally sweat out pure resin, 100% hash concentrate. It mellowed Bruce out, slowed him down. When he wasn't mellowed out, he sweat like a pig. He worked so hard that he sweat through his clothes at every take. The thought of sweat seeping through his shirts on screen disgusted him, so he had the sweat glands in his armpits surgically removed. And he worked so hard that on May 10, 1973, in an overheated room at Golden Harvest Studios in Hong Kong, while overdubbing lines for Enter the Dragon, waiting for the hash to take effect, thinking of a visit to Betty's apartment, his armpits hot and abnormally dry, Bruce gave in to the demands of gravity, fell to the floor, unconscious, where he emptied the contents of his lunch from his stomach and began to shake in violent convulsions. And in that moment, Bruce Lee couldn't help but wonder if he had worked himself to death. He ate the hash brownie for dessert. It was hot as fuck. 90 degrees, sticky Hong Kong humidity. And Bruce Lee wasn't feeling all that great to begin with. He had another headache, and he hoped the hash brownie would help. July 20th, 1973. He paced the flat of Betty Ting Pei, his mistress, and sat on her bed. Bruce had a lot on his mind. The finishing touches were being put on Enter the Dragon. Warner Brothers wanted Bruce under contract for more films. Hanna-Barbera wanted to make a cartoon based on his life. George Lazenby, the only actor to play James Bond for only one film, wanted to star in Bruce's next film, Game of Death. But it was hard to think about everything else on his mind when the most pressing thing on his mind was literally pressing, this vice-like goddamn headache. And the headache was similar to the one he suffered in the overheated studio at Golden Harvest back in May. He didn't die that day, even if it felt like he did. Instead, he was rushed to the hospital convulsing, a metal spoon between his teeth, where it was determined that he had suffered from a cerebral edema, fluid around the brain. But one doctor said he had a grand mal seizure, another blamed the hash, and none of the doctors from Hong Kong to LA thought twice about heat stroke or about Bruce's surgically altered armpits. In 1973, hard as it may be to believe, many doctors were still in the dark when it came to heat stroke even though many athletes routinely experienced its debilitating, even fatal effects in the hot summer months. The pain in Bruce's head worsened. Betty gave him some equagesic, a prescription pain med that was part aspirin and part tranquilizer. Bruce took one. He told Betty that he had to lie down. And then, when Betty next checked on him, around 9.30 that evening, Bruce Lee was dead. There was no warning, no buildup. No fight. One minute he was there, and the next, he was gone. Golden Harvest couldn't risk word getting out about his mistress, Betty, or the hash. As news hit the wires, the studio rushed out a press release that said Bruce Lee died unexpectedly while walking through his garden with his wife by his side. Cause of death, TBD. The press smelled something besides daisies in that garden, and they kept sniffing. A few days later, the morning of Bruce's Hong Kong funeral, the ambulance driver who brought Bruce's body to the hospital squealed. The Golden Harvest party line was bullshit. Bruce died in the flat of another actress. The public had come to their own scandalous conclusions. 
Bruce's camp scrambled, they had to protect Bruce's image. Enter the Dragon was weeks away from wide release. So they acknowledged that Bruce was in Betty's apartment, but they put him there with Raymond Chow. It was a business meeting, not a romantic tryst. Bruce felt ill while he was there, had to lie down, took a pill, but a bing, but a dead Bruce. Coroner's inquest set the wheels in motion for an official investigation. Medical experts said the hash was to blame, or maybe the equagesic, or maybe a second cerebral edema. And the three-man jury didn't know what to make of it and simply declared Bruce Lee's untimely passing death by misadventure. In later years, it became more obvious that the heat stroke was more than likely to blame. The fans, though, not just the longtime fans, but the new worshippers at the altar of Bruce Lee thanks to the phenomenal success of Enter the Dragon, which immediately launched a kung fu renaissance in America, they weren't buying it. It was hard for them to believe that Bruce Lee, a larger-than-life superhuman, a man who disposed of a dojo's worth of disbelievers with his bare hands, a man whose fists moved faster than your eyes could even process, could die from getting too hot. You're telling me that Bruce Lee died from heat exhaustion? Bruce Lee deserved a more dramatic death. He deserved to have been heroically beaten by a fatal punch, the death touch or vibrating palm. They called it Dimmock in Cantonese, the same one that Roman Polanski conjured up when he suspected Bruce was a killer. It's a precise attack on pressure points in the body that doesn't kill its victim for days, months, even years. Whether or not it's actually real depends on who you ask. The famous record producer Phil Spector, for one, did his part to spread the rumor around town that Bruce Lee was a victim of Dimmock. And who would have delivered Dimmock to Bruce? Ninja assassins? Triad gangs? Golden Harvest hitmen? An obsessed fan scaling the walls in Kowloon Tong? Wong Jack Man back for revenge? The possibilities were endless. Could have been any one of them. Maybe someone else entirely just as long as it was thrilling, just as long as the fantasy outmatched the legend of Bruce Lee. Because if it wasn't, if Bruce Lee was dead from an allergic reaction, from a hash brownie, from a fucking heat stroke, from plain old stress, then those fans would be forced to ask themselves, just who was Bruce Lee? Well, he wasn't who or what they all thought he was. They thought he was a family man. Well, he had a mistress. They thought he was a nice guy. His ego worked twice as hard as his body. And they thought he was invincible. Well, in a way, he was, but even invincible people have a spot somewhere on their body unknown to all us invincible types, an area of weakness, a pressure point perhaps, that when struck can nullify said invincibility. All it takes is a two-fingered death touch, a pill, a pinch of hash, some exhaustion, a change in body temperature, something unexpected that finds its way in. And when it finds its way in, something unexpected happens, something so unexpected that it ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.